If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Nahum. We're in Nahum chapter 2 this morning. As we continue on in our series in the Minor Prophets, to seeing how God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And as we get started, let me ask you this question. Do you see God's hand at work? When you look at the world, when you look at the history, when you look at the newspapers, when you look at your life, do you see God's hand at work? In the here and the now, it's often difficult to even see that. You know, we're you're just crying out a lot of the times, and you're wondering, is there a God, and is he even there? Is he even helping? Do you see God's hand at work? As you look at history, do you see God's hand at work? You know, in this second oracle that we'll read very shortly in this message, Nahum is, is, is talking about the divine retribution for Assyria because of their br- brutal uh, and repressive actions that they have done against Judah, against God's people. You know, Assyria being the capital, the Assyrian capital being Nineveh. It is a harrowing illustration of divine judgment. It is absolutely breathtaking when you read it through. As divine judgment is being poured out, as the deterioration of an empire and the impeding tack of the capital becomes, will become reality. Assyria falls and it's, symbolizes a turning point in history. The chaos it imposed on more, many more smaller kingdoms, including Judah, will become their problem. It will come crashing down upon them. You know, but here is the thing. Uh, historians will look at Assyria and they will study it and they will ask this question of how did this great empire begin to collapse and to fall? And, and they will come up with many reasons. Uh, political turmoil, civil war, they, bad leadership, all of these examples. But Nahum doesn't want you to see that at all. He wants to, see you so, he wants to show you something very important. That has nothing to do with all of these things. It has to do with the hand of God at work. This is part of God's sovereign plan. See, Nahum has no interest in looking at history and saying what, it, what, what is about to happen is because of political or military or social disintegration. This happens because none other than the divine decree of Yahweh, of God himself, the God of the earth. Well, Assyria's demise could be attributed to many factors. The most important thing here, and this is what we see in Nahum chapter 2, is divine justice of the Lord. Last week we saw that in Nahum 1, verses 3, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and, guilt and, great, in, sorry, and great in power. And he continues on and says, And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And this is the 
outplaying. This is the play that is beginning to happen. This is a prophecy. This has not happened. As we read this through, it's very easy if you're a history guy to go, oh man, that is so much detail. I wonder if it was written after the fall of Nineveh. No, in the timeline of history, this was written about 100 years before. But there's such great detail from who does it to how it happens that because it's God's decree, God can make great detail. Only he can because he's the sovereign God over all things, including history. So if you have your Bibles with you, Nahum chapter 2 says this. The scatter has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. One on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure or to the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruined. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in, in all lions. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, as we continue to worship you through the opening of your word and through the preaching of your word, Lord, I pray that indeed you would be glorified and that you would be lifted up high. God, I pray i do really pray that i would glorify you i want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name god and i don't have the giftings to do this out on my own so by your spirit lord help me to preach this sermon with what is needed help to use please use this sermon to bring glory to your name joy to your people and salvation to the lost and amen So now the prophet gives a full-length portrait of the punishment of Nineveh for their sins that they have committed. So what you see here in this next part is God's hand at work. And I think I can't stress this enough. If you're ever wondering if you can ever see God's hand at work in your life, go look back. 
journaling is a spiritual discipline for a reason. So you can go back and look and see how God has been working in your life. Not that long ago, this last week, I was looking through my own journals because I try to do that every once in a while. And I could see God at work. I didn't know it at the time. And as we look at this, uh, Judah did not know it at the time. Nineveh was at its height, it's at its strength. It was oppressing the people of God. They were taxed to an incredible length. They were hopeless. They couldn't see God's hand at work. But God comes and he gives this prophecy that we know because we have hindsight that happens in its full way. So divine retribution is executed here. In verse 1, the, the, Nahum comes along and he says, scatter, uh, The scatter has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. He's calling on to the Nineveh, the mighty military power. Come, gather together, get ready, the, the people are coming. In this text, you don't necessarily know who it is, but you kind of do if you know your history, because in verse, in, in verse 3 comes, the shield of his mighty men is red, and his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. And we actually know from Habakkuk that this is Babylon. God uses another nation, an evil nation, to come and to punish another nation. And then Nahum comes and he calls the people to get ready for battle. And he gives us the reason for this because God is about to restore his people. The majesty. They will now again be part of the land that God had promised them. They will once again have dominion over their own land. The punishment is now over. God will restore them. And as these mighty men are coming... This approaching army, we see in verse 3, the scene one of this play that is beginning to, to come forward. The shield of the mighty men is red. The army is approaching. And as they march and as they approach, in verse 4, they're actually, we find that they're inside the city itself. The great city of Nineveh. One of the largest cities of this time, massively high and thick walls, and the chariots have come in. These aren't soldiers, these are chariots, which means that at some point during the battle, there was such a great breach within the walls that the chariots could go through the streets. Not too long before this actually happens to Assyria, the king of the time actually went through a building project of widening the streets and widening the gates. Do you not see, even in that, God sovereignly working out all things to fulfill what he said would happen? And the chariots come And they come and they attack. And they come and they attack with such ease. With speed. Rapid and and ease. They just come and they move throughout the cities as they begin to attack. They rush to and fro through the square like gleams, like torches. They dart like lightning. They're so fast. It's like the superhero Flash. Because that's who I am. I like superheroes. I'm not afraid to say it. 
right? You, you watch the show flash, and he's just like, right? And it's all you see. That's, that's the sound effect he makes. And all you see is just a flash, lightning. His symbol is lightning. And that's what's happening. This is so easy for them. This, this once mighty uh, city, this once mighty nation, uh, that they thought they were in, 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 undefeatable. Undefeatable. And yet here we see the, the, such ease is coming through that the chariots are now through the whole city itself. And as, as, the, as, as the king, as it says in verse 5, he, the king, remembers his officers and he starts screaming at them, what are you guys doing? Get to the walls! And what happens? They stumble as they go. The once mighty, mighty armies of Assyria are crumbling before the Babylonian army. And it's not just a crumble, it's like easy. You know, I was reminded of, of this even with, I'm reading through Judges right now and I just finished reading through Gideon and Gideon comes and he defeats his massive army with like 300 people. Right? Is there anything that is impossible for our God? No. Absolutely nothing. If it's within God's will, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To the point that even the army, they stumble as they go like a drunk person. This is what the text is trying to imply here. They hasten to the wall, but the, but the siege tower is already there. People are pouring over the walls. No matter what action has no matter what action is about to happen by the Ninevite army, it doesn't matter because it's too late. People are in the city. It got to the point that we know that through historical texts that the king of Syria, of Assyria at this time, he gathers all of his stuff, all of his wives, all of his concubines, and he sticks them in the palace and he lits everything on fire. He is so hopeless. He doesn't want anybody to have any of his stuff. And he remembers his officers and they stumble as they go and they hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up and it goes. In verse 6, we have scene number 4. That year in Nineveh, we see that the gates, the river gates are open. And what's so interesting about this is that that year in Nineveh, there was so much water because in Nineveh, there was a river that flew right between it, which is actually a pretty smart idea, especially when you're under siege. You need water. But what happened was that there was so much water that came down at that moment that the gates, the river gates, the wall, the whole section of the wall collapsed. Huge hole in their wall. Which goes back to the previous verses in verse 4 of how the chariots got in there. Do you not see God's hand at work? The one who controls, who, the one who by his word spoke into being all things. It's the same God who can come along and cause the rain to fall and so much so that the walls will, fall, will crumble. To allow the chariots to go through. He's the one that causes the, the, the mental stability of these men to, to, to crumble as they see the approaching army of red 
so that they begin to crumble and stumble so that they can't stand against the siege towers. As it continues on, all of these things aren't by chance, but the work of a sovereign God and his decree being fulfilled. God's hand is at work as divine retribution is being executed upon a people that rejected God. They rejected him. And this is what happens. And in verse 7, its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting. And, and in this time period, we have uh, city gods. And one of the aspects of when you win, this is often a battle between gods. If one person won, that means their God was greater than the other God. Right? So what we see here is that the, there are gods being stripped and brought out of the city. Your God couldn't protect your city. <laughs> but as we even look at this later on, if this is, ba- this is Babylon doing this, eventually they will be brought to their knees too because there is only one true God. So he comes, and, and, and the slave girls, the, 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 the temple priestess, they were lamenting and, and beating their breasts. And, and Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Like there's, it's just like, have you ever seen those videos on YouTube or Facebook? I've gone into this problem where you can get on Facebook and you click the video icon and you can scroll on forever. <laughs> and you get these two-minute short little videos, and it's just awful, Okay. And some of the funny ones are with somebody, like, they're in a pool. There's, like, a guy in a pool, uh, like, above-ground pool, and someone, like, slices the pool, and the water flushes out, and the guy goes flying, right? This is what's happening. Nothing can stop it. You could sit there and kind of, like, try and lap the water back in, but nothing's going to stop the water from coming out. Nothing is going to stop what's going to happen, what God has decreed. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters are running away, and they say, Halt! Halt! Stop! They cry as they're being looted. But none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. All of the wealth that they have been plundering from all of the other nations. When you go in and you take over a nation, you take everything. Assyria even took people. And they would bring it all to Nineveh. So think about the hundreds of years that this empire was going around and, 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 and plundering all of these other nations. This city was bloated with stuff. Gold upon gold upon gold and silver. The accounts of the, the things that came out of Thebes as Nineveh conquered Thebes is an astronomical amount of horses and gold and silver. And the army, uh, the enemy army comes in and they begin to plunder. There is no end of the treasure. It's just like candy land for the kid. Desolation, desolation and ruin. Even though they had so much stuff. 
even though they put all of their hope in their military might, even though they put all their hope in their financial stability, even though they put their hope in their good looks and their charm, desolation and ruin. Because God decreed it. See, God uses this nation. And we see the results of this attack in this final scene of this section here. The hearts melt, the knees tremble, anguish is in all lions, all faces grow pale. And I'm sure that we can all relate to that at some point in our life where you're just so overcome that all you can do is just fall. At least you feel like it. Your knees get weak. That's what's happening. There's nothing left. Hearts are melting and knees are trembling. Anguish is in all lions. All faces grow pale. See, this is the thing that I look at with this, is that God uses a nation here that we will see eventually in our next book called Habakkuk that God describes as ruthless and dreaded. See, Babylon is no better than Assyria. Yet God, for some reason, in his sovereignty, comes and he decides to use this ruthless and and evil nation to punish another ruthless and evil nation. And I ask myself a lot of things about this. Like, what is going on? See, there's an important distinction that needs to be made in this. That there's a difference between controlling evil and creating evil. God is not the author of sin, but he can use sinful men to attend an objective. We see this in Romans 8.28. It's one of my favorite verses. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, the text says, including both the good, the bad, and the ugly. God can use struggles, heartbreak, tragedies, in ways to bring about his glory and our good. Such events, even though we don't understand the reason for them, even though we cry out with a why, are part of his perfect plan. If God cannot control evil, he would not be God. His sovereignty demands that he be in control of everything, even the dreaded nations such as Babylon, such as Assyria, such as whatever the equivalent is in our current society. At the same time, the Bible is clear that God does not sin and he performs no evil. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. See, a problem that kind of comes up here is that God was using the Babylonians and other evil people to accomplish his will. Our our wise and perfect God can and sometimes does use sin that already exists to accomplish his will. We're the ones that sinned. But our sin does not stop the sovereignty of God. God's will will be done. You see, the perfect example of that is the cross. Think about it. It's the most horrendous way of killing someone, right? 
Jesus Christ, God himself, comes down from his throne. He lives a perfect life. He, he, he does everything that the law requires that we could not. He's perfect. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the sustainer of all things. And he's crucified to the cross. He works in amazing things. The murder of Christ was an evil act. But through it, God redeemed his elect and disarmed the powers and the authorities of this world. In Nan's day, God's purpose was to bring judgment to Assyria for their injustice. Babylon was the instrument of his judgments. Do you see God's hand at work? How is such devastation good news for Judah, the people of God, to you, to me? This might seem cruel and cold-hearted, but when one realizes that Assyria is receiving divine justice for its cruel punishments of countless people throughout the whole Near East, then it becomes clear that God is a God of justice. God is just as well as loving. Every person has some sort of a sense of justice, even if it has been distorted by sin. And when we declare that God is just, we affirm that he is eternally right to exercise justice on humans in accordance to his will. Assyria had mocked God. And, it, and it, if God determines the fate, and, and therefore God determines the fate of the Assyrians and the allies. See, God will repay people for their sins. We see that over and over again. God will judge. But that brings us back to the cross again. Because if I stand before a holy God, a God who is just, and, and I know I'm sinful, I know I, I have broken his, his law, I know I've broken his rules, I know I've done treason against him, I know I am a sinful person, broken. And I know that God is a just God, the just thing is that he's going to punish me. But that brings us back to the cross. Because God pours out his judgment upon his own son so that anyone who repents and, anyone who repents and believes in, Lord, in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be saved. I either stand before God on my own or I stand before God upon what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. One way I'm saved, the other way I'm damned. But then we see that you and I can read this and wonder, how is this even justified? But the last three verses of this chapter show a God-centered response to the fall of Assyria because divine retribution is justified. Verses 11 to 12, this is, a, this is what justifies these retributions. We see here, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions where lion and lioness went? where his cubs were with none to disturb. You can kind of get this picture of them. Uh, I just watched The Lion King, so I get this. The, uh, you got the lion's pride, and they're hanging out in the cave, and they're just chilling under the sun. Life is great. There's no shortage of food. There's no shortage of comfort. There's prey to be devoured, and they devour at will. There's nothing there. See, in, in, 
in Assyria, the kings were often depicted as lions. So you see the, begin, the, you see the beginning of an imagery that is beginning to happen here. The lion's den, the king, the feeding place of the young lions, the, the large pride of a family. They're, uh, they're just comfortable and they're secure in their ways. But verse 12, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He, he filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. An image of Assyria is being sketched into a picture of that large family. And these lions have a violent existence with a wide variety of turns of, of, for hunting activities. They tore and, and they strangled and, and, they, and they had prey and they had torn flesh and they killed in order to provide... See, strong and mighty are the, is the lion. Assyria is the lion. But the lion of Judah will devour the lion of Assyria. Because in verse 13, we see the reason for all of that's happening. The reason that Nineveh falls is because of a confrontation with Israel's almighty God. Behold, I am against you. That is huge. That is huge. And outside of Jesus, that's where we all are. That's why Jesus died. Our greatest need is the need of a Savior, folks. Because outside of Jesus, these words are for me. I am against you. Because I am sinful. I have betrayed God. I have done treason against him. And my God is a just God. I sure hope so. So no matter how overwhelming the power of evil is, if God is for us, we will ultimately be victorious. And that's the main thing. The so what of of this day, of this sermon, of this text That God hates evil and he will punish sin. That is why it matters to you, Christian, for me. No matter how overwhelming the power of evil is, if God is for us, we will ultimately be victorious. Because for Assyria, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord, became reality. Nahum shows God's punishment of Nineveh, the capital city, and the Assyrian Empire, which is one of the cruelest in all of history, had turned its back against God. God had sent messengers to them to say, hey, repent. And they did for a little bit. But then they turned back. God will destroy them. God will destroy its hold over Judah Nahum announces peace and protection for God's people, but justice for Nineveh as he proclaims God's forthcoming triumph against its evil. See, the fierce lion will be devoured by the lion of Judah, by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This shows that God hates evil and will punish sin. The Bible says that we've all sinned. So if we aren't relying on the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we stand accused of our own works and not Jesus's. 
The Bible says we are saved by repenting of our rebellion and our sin and believing in the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. See, during Jesus' time here on earth, on his earthly ministry, Jesus shows his power to forgive sins, heal sickness, control demons, and even rise the de- raise the dead. The resurrection and exalted Christ's infinite power and reign are more than enough to reassure you that you, that your spiritual folds, folds are fully under his control and will one day be destroyed. You know, I was reminded this week in our prayer meeting how often I fall, we all fall into this hopeless state of looking around and wondering if God is truly at work or if he's really in control or, or what's going on. Folks, if God is not in control, who do I cry out to? I, cry, I can cry out to no one in my pain and suffering. What's the point? What's the point of praying to God if he's not sovereign over all things? You have to. He has to be sovereign over all things. So in my pain and my suffering, I cry out. But we can forget that this is the God who is at work in all things. We forget that our hope is anchored in the one who raises the dead. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 9 to 10. I was reminded about it this week. Indeed, Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever feel like that before? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So as we end this chapter of Nahum, do you believe it? No matter how overwhelming the power of evil is, If God is for us, we will ultimately be victorious. History shows this to be true. God is faithful. And as we look to the future that seems incredibly uncertain, let us stay anchored to the one who raises the dead. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We praise you for what you have done. And Lord, I pray that we indeed would be a church that places our hope in you. That you are a faithful God, that you are a good father, that you will work out all things for your glory and our good. Lord, I pray that no matter what and how overwhelming our our certain circumstances may be, Lord, that if you are for us, we will ultimately be victorious. May we rest in you and what you have done. May we praise you, O Lord, as the Lion of Judah.